This is an ABC podcast. Today on Conversations, it's all about mammals. Mammals are an extraordinarily versatile class of creatures. While most live on land, there are those like bats that fly through the air, as well as dolphins and porpoises that live in the water. And one species of mammal in particular, by virtue of its giant brain, has come to dominate the entire planet and transform it. Most notably, of course, mammals are creatures that suckle their young with milk from the mother's body, and their babies are frequently adorable. Chris Helgen is here. Chris is a biologist who grew up in the United States. He's been fascinated and obsessed with the wide expanse of mammalian life on this planet ever since he was a little kid. Chris has discovered and named a hundred or so mammals, often by finding their preserved remains languishing in a forgotten box or drawer in a museum somewhere. Chris is now Chief Scientist at the Australian Museum Research Institute, and he now thinks it's likely that mammals originated in Australia, such as it was back in the day. Hi, Chris. Hi there, Richard. You grew up in Minnesota. What was the natural world like for you as a kid in that part of the world? It's a wonderful place to grow up in the natural world. Minnesota is where, in the northern part of the U.S., those kind of expansive, rolling prairies of the West come right up against the kind of great green forests of the north, you know, these sort of boreal forests. And where I grew up, there was suburb, there was farmland not too far away. There were natural areas where you even had animals like, uh, you know, wolves not so far away, moose, you know. So, uh, moose? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, how about bears? Grew up with bears. Um, black bears in particular, you know, are a really common uh, animal in much of the United States. Uh, they're not as dangerous as the brown ones, are that's, they? That's to humans? right. So they're, they're, they're much smaller. Uh, they're much more sort of adaptable. They can kind of live in all sorts of landscapes. You know, you'll read uh, newspaper articles about someone's backyard in New Jersey, you know, not far from New York City, where you've got, you know, bears raiding their, their garbage. It's a really large but adaptable, smart uh, animal. It was that fascination with nature from an early age uh, that grabbed a hold of me and has helped to guide me in part all along to who I am now. The beauty inherent in nature was uh, a really important aspect of that and being grabbed a hold you know, of wonder about the natural world. Did you know at an early age it was going to be something you wanted to be part of for the rest of your life? I, I did. And so the story in my family is that you know, I always loved animals. You know, this was part of who I am. But at a certain age, you don't quite know what professions are like or what occupations are real. No, we're not careerists at five, are we? No. <laughs> no. But so when I was sort of three, four years old, I loved animals and I thought maybe I wanted to be, you know, a farmer. That was a, a, a normal thing I could see around me. And that's because, you know, you could have, uh, you could work with animals. You, like cows you know. and chickens and ducks and exactly. sheep and all that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, as I grew just a little bit older, you know, like, like many kids are, I, I was absolutely fascinated with dogs and cats and horses and like like so many kids are but it was something a bit different and a bit more than that for me so you wanted to be a zoologist could you pronounce the word zoologist when you were five pretty much yes and and, and not only that i started to understand what my own fascination might be it started to crystallize around this great variety of animal life, and for me in particular, 
mammal life, you know, how different an animal like a whale is to a bat, is to a dog, is to a human, but nevertheless, they are all mammals, clearly mammals, you know, united in form by many shared features. And this question popped into my head as this little, little kid, and it was, how many ways are there to be a mammal? And how long before you realized you were standing in front of an ocean? It, was, it was a while. It was, it was a number of years because there was no internet. There was no sort of right. you know, place for me to access technical information. This was a place where this was a world where I was learning what I wanted to know about mammals from the public library. Uh, I was getting on my bike and riding down to the public library, pulling things off the shelves. You know, at first, you know, not very technical tomes, then rapidly graduating to the reference section of local libraries where each, you know, each one I could get into had something slightly different, maybe a sort of uh, a, a reference book or a part of an encyclopedia or something. And ev- everything taught me a little bit, a little bit more. So were you getting like a map of this in your head as you were finding out this stuff? Like exactly right. A map. And it wasn't long before I was keeping kid-like notebooks of lists of every kind of mammal that I knew about or I could find. And again, these, this started simple as it, was, as it would, you know, a sort of a kid-like fascination, but it was rapidly graduating into me trying to find ever more technical tomes and texts. A little kid might suppose that there might be two or three dozen kinds of mammals. There's going to be the cat, the dog, the human, the whale, the, the bat, the sheep, the cow. In reality, how many kinds of mammals are there in the world? Do we even know? Yeah, so that's part of the uh, the the uh, mystique of it all is that we don't know for sure. But what's the likely figure though? What... Well, the the going the going number is approaching about seven thousand right species of mammals that are sort of by scientific consensus recognized in the world today. My guess is that some decades from now, when we've had more time than we've had now to explore, to look more closely, to work through museum collections, to run more field expeditions, to study DNA in greater detail, that that number will sit somewhere between ten and 15,000 species. That's a fair number of ways to be a mammal, and that's lots of bats, that's lots of rodents, uh, and that's lots of other you know, incredible uh, different kinds of species. So when I was a kid, I'd learn about them at zoos, museums, uh, television programs, the library. There's an interesting thing, China, to, to, to speak to the importance of public libraries yeah, and how important they are. When I was, I, I found something early on, I was probably about eight years old, called the Encyclopedia of Mammals. A nice, beautiful, big tome with lots of pictures. And, you know, this became the book of choice for me. So you just kept taking it out the library then? Well, it was in the reference section. So I couldn't check oh, it out. Right. You know, I could only use it while I was in the library. And so I became a fixture, of course, to the librarians. They knew I would be in on certain days to absorb as much of this as I possibly could. This went on so long. And, you know, you can imagine how quaint this was as me coming in, taking notes out of this book, that ultimately they bought a second copy, took it out of the reference section. Then I could take it home. And eventually that one got so worn they had to replace it. Eventually I got my own copy. Right. Have you still got a copy of that I book? I still home? have a copy. A of that ragged, book. worn out. So you destroyed several copies of this book <laughs> through your interest. How lovely. Absolutely. So I've had people on the past who, zoologists, but who are obsessed with birds. And that comes from a childhood fasc- fascination and fixation. And there's all sorts of reasons you can understand why people become 
absolutely beguiled and enchanted and delighted by the whole world of birds. Mm. What was it for mammals for you then? Why, why not birds or snakes, for instance? Yeah, why mammals? Good question. I think uh, for the exact same reason that the lightning bolt hits someone and it's birds and its lightning hit, bolt hits someone and it's frogs, you know, for me it was, it was mammals. Why? I think it's a group that is so kind of wonderfully sort of singular and united like there's things that all mammals so clearly share yet there's so much point of difference like and then there's much more so let me defend myself than say birds right? really no but because like you know with, with birds you don't have animals like here's a whale and here's a, a mole you know <laughs> under the ground and you know here's a flying fox and by the way, you know, here's this uh, polar bear hunting the seal under the ice. Uh, I'm just saying that uh, there's just so much majesty and variation and wonder in the, the types of, of, of ways of being a mammal that just had hold of me. I know you, you scientists aren't supposed to admit to such things, but did I touch on something in my introduction when I talked about the young being adorable? Because there are mammals typically are attractive to, to humans. They're the most charismatic, well, among the most charismatic creatures on the earth is there something in that for you as well definitely i mean young i think young animals are cute mm. but young mammals are you know are, adorable are absolutely adorable i think i think you know the, the idea that that's hardwired into us in some way to you know be empathetic or just fall in love with you know young animals whether it's our own babies or any other thing whether it's a puppy or any other darling little creature uh, there's a lot. I think there's some real uh, biology there, but you know it gets round to the core of what it is to be a mammal, and you, you know the idea that every single species of mammal, no matter what it is, raises its young from that first point with milk from a mother. And you know, that's kind of an extraordinary aspect. No, you know, the, people ask, "What is it? You know, how do you know it's a mammal? You know, how do you define a mammal?" and and I, I'll ask this to students, you know, in introductory biology courses. And, you know, people, people will go back and forth. and say, well, I guess it has hair. And I guess, well, we've warm-blooded. It's definitely warm-blooded. Maybe something about the heart, the four chambers. Maybe, maybe it's teeth. It can be some of all those things. But at the core, there's really one definition of what it is to be a mammal. And that is that it's an animal that raises its young with milk from its mother. This is actually the quintessence, the idea of... You know, mammal comes from mammary, right? Mm. Uh, it comes from mama. You know, this is mm. sort of, you know, this is who we all are at, at, at our core. And, and that extraordinary bond then that exists between mother and child is then essentially the defining aspect of what it means to be a mammal. So the mammals are our cousins, our charismatic cousins that live down the road a fair bit and around the corner from us. And so no wonder we're interested in, in them. We should have done this on Mother's we, we Day. Should, we should have done this on Mother's Day. That's right. <laughs> That's right, Chris. Uh, now, it probably hasn't occurred to you, but I'm actually an expert in mammals and I come from this by watching the BBC series Walking with Beasts about 5,000 oh. times with oh, my goody. son when my son was little. We, we, we went from walking with dinosaurs <laughs> to walking with beasts. Right. And so, right. so uh, let, let me just test the limits of my expertise on this. My understanding is that it was the mass extinction of the dinosaurs that over time really allowed the mammals to predominate, to move into a whole lot of different areas that created the space for them to become so extraordinarily diverse. Is, is that right? Well done. Yes, okay, I will tick. say right. you get a tick there. <laughs> uh, I, that is a really uh, good classical exposition, I think, of 
the story of the success of mammals, that point of, of, of dinosaur extinction about 66 million years ago, impact hit the globe and dinosaurs very rapidly disappeared all over the, the globe. That is followed by what we call the age of mammals. The Don't you really era. wish that some of those early mammals were still around, like the saber-toothed tiger or the diprotodon? <laughs> Wouldn't it be really cool to have a planet with those beasts walking around on it? Look, it, it would, absolutely. And uh, when you think about that as a thought experiment, the, the thing that can really start to boggle your mind is the fact that those you've just mentioned, which you've seen and walking with, uh, what is it? walking with bees. Yes, that's what, that's my doctorate in, uh, in <laughs> biology comes from walking, watching walking, walking with, with bees, bees. five thousand times. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, like say the diprotodon mm -hmm. or you know a saber-toothed cat. These are actually ice age animals. You know they were with us until an amazingly recent point in time. So not so much uh, early kind of long extinct creatures as ones that actually shared our planet with us for most of our own human history. And there's almost certainly a link between their disappearance and the coexistence with humans now, isn't there? Right, exactly. That's another kind of... Uh, Seems like we hunted them. Yeah, it? exactly. There's a remarkable correlation and link between the disappearance of, of large animals like, for example, the saber-toothed cats in North and South America or uh, diprotodon and other large, you know, gigantic marsupials in Australia as people moved around around the world. But, you know, when dinosaurs were still on the globe, mammals lived with them for a very long time. But they were mostly small. They were mostly underfoot. And it was post that extinction that what we think of as, as the modern mammals, the, the different groups that we would, you know, recognize now, a bat, uh, a whale, and a hoofed animal, those types of animals really started to evolve and take on their their form and what had been mostly smaller creatures um, started to become a wide array of species that had a greater number of adaptations and became you know in many cases much much larger than they had before so you went from being this fascinated kid to an undergraduate at harvard where you did your degree in biology that's right. Was Australia always on your list to come here for the mammalian, the Australian mammalian experience? Absolutely, it was. You know, Australia is a mammalogist mecca. Is that because our mammals are so distinctive? Yeah, and, right. And that's and it's also because at, at the core of being a mammal, there are only really three ways to do it. You can be what we call a placental mammal, uh, animals like ourselves that give birth to fairly well-formed uh, babies after uh, developing it for quite some time in a placenta, or you can be a marsupial, you know, which means you're born at a fairly early stage of development and then uh, develop outside the mother's body, usually in a pouch. Or you can be, and these are this is the really this is the really crazy one. You can be, of course, an egg-laying mammal, mammal or monotremes. Monotremes, yes, the platypus yeah. and the echidna. Exactly. Right, those two two outliers who uh, are completely fascinating. Well, exactly, and you have to come to Australia or its continental shelf neighbor, the island of New Guinea, to be in the place in this world where you can come and see all three of those flavors of mammal. So, tell me about your first visit to the Australian Museum way back in 1998, Chris. Yeah, heady days for me. I was 18 years old and uh, I uh, was the sort of uh, first member of my family in Minnesota to leave the state and go pursue an education somewhere else. And for me, it was, it was Harvard University, which as a flashy name and a, a sterling reputation in some ways, for me, it, it was none of that. It was nothing like that that was drawing me to it. It was the fact that Harvard had a Museum of Comparative Zoology. 
And that museum was sort of like, you know, the moth's flame for me, pulled me straight straight to it. In my first year at Harvard, I had a chance for an expense-paid trip to come to Australia. This was a, an absolute dream come true. And one of the first places that I went when I sat down in Sydney was straight across to the Australian Museum. I hadn't made any booking or made any arrangement or, uh, you know, called or, or contacted anyone, but I knew that at this museum, Tim Flannery was there, that he worked there. As a, a younger teenager, I'd seen Tim in places like National Geographic magazine, coming out of the mountains of New Guinea, you know, with tales of tree kangaroos that, you know, were new to science. This was exactly the kind of fascinating, you know, life of discovery that I thought that, that I wanted. So you came to Sydney, yeah. went to the Australian Museum, and what did you do once you got there? Well, it's so funny. I'm a naive kid. You know, I'm 18, and I, I'm trying to see Tim Flannery, and I, I go to the, the public entrance, which, uh, you know, used to be on, on College Street, and I said, you know, I'm looking to try to see a staff member. They say, oh, not here. Go around. Go around to the side on William Street. So I went over there to the to the staff entrance, and uh, there was a security guard there and a receptionist. And I said to the receptionist, uh, is Tim Flannery here? And uh, uh, she looks at me and she said, well, is, is he expecting you? And I said, well, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think so but uh uh and she said well let me call and see. So uh she calls up and she says he'll be right down. And so uh Tim came down. Tim comes down and you know he sort of bursts through these sliding doors from the kind of behind the scenes area, you know, takes a look at me and literally grabs me by the arm, pulls me into the behind the scenes of the museum and and off we go. And we went into the mammal section. So this, again, behind the scenes where, you know, uh, uh, the magic really happens inside natural history museums, you know, storerooms filled with cabinets, each of which, as you open them, you know, is filled with drawers. And in these drawers are specimens, in this case of mammals that have been collected on, you know, expeditions decades or even centuries into the past. This is your dream come true. Then. It's amazing. It's amazing. And you know, particular, particularly for Australia, for New Guinea, this is this treasure trove of stuff that most of which I'd never seen before. Tim starts to show me, pulls out drawers of specimens of tree kangaroos that, you know, working with uh, indigenous hunters in parts of New Guinea that had never been explored by scientists before, you know, as a younger man in his own career, uh, had uncovered some of these animals that Western scientists didn't know about. Here they are in, in drawers and beautiful creatures, you know, stunning animals, thick-furred, brown uh, animals. There's a particular kind of uh, tree kangaroo that's, um, that he had named as a scientist that's called uh, Dendrolagus pulcarimus, and, uh, and pulcarimus literally means most beautiful. It's the most beautiful tree kangaroo. It's It's red and golden, and, you know, just all these beautiful ornate markings on it. And this is sort of the one specimen anywhere in the world was, you know, in that museum and he pulled it out. And when he showed you this exotic species of New Guinean tree kangaroo, did you know what it was? Did you, could you identify it? That was part of excitement for both of us. I knew what all of them were. This was such a lifelong fascination with me that by the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I actually knew the scientific name of essentially all mammals on the planet. <laughs> all of them? Yeah, all of them. As I started to, you know, 
find the ways to access technical libraries and get to know all of them. Then when I went to Harvard and got behind the scenes working in their museum, an extraordinary collection, not one of the biggest museums in the world, the Museum of Comparative Zoology, but because um, you know Harvard has been around hundreds of years, it's a very wealthy institution, uh, it was a place where you could sort of expect they had gotten their hands on at least one of almost everything. So here I am as a kid, learning, had learned Latin names of almost all mammals as you'd learn a, a second language. So you could put a face to the name. I could put a face to the wow. name. All of a sudden, I could you know, instantly recognize the skull or teeth of a giant panda. No mistaking it. All of a sudden, I could identify the skull and teeth of a, a Ganges river dolphin. You know, no mistaking it. But it, made, it, it required access to these tools. And so all the names I had... I could put, you know, the, as you say, the face to the name, literally, all the anatomy, every different way to be a mammal. I was there to try to test myself and try to be able to recognize it uh, as best as possible, sort of on site as soon as I saw it inside a museum drawer. So the Australian Museum, a year onward, Tim said, I want to show you this treasure trove cabinet of extinct, recently extinct Australian mammals. We're looking at Betongs and bandicoots and native mice of, that are, that are extinct, and uh, Tim pu- pulls open one drawer, and there's a little furry kangaroo-like animal in, in the one corner, and I looked at it and I said, "Is that Caloprimnus campestris?" <laughs> and that is a pretty obscure desert betong. Not many specimens in the world, extinct. Not that well known. And Tim looked at me and he said, yeah, that is Caliprimnus campestris. There's only one specimen in the Australian Museum. There's one specimen of it at Harvard. So you two were in love at that point, effectively. From, you know, this is about, this is about 10 minutes in. We were in love at that moment. We've <laughs> remained so ever since. We're still inseparable working on all these things together. Chris, you're a great believer in libraries, but also museums and it was in one museum you found a specimen of an animal that was going to take you all over the world. Tell me about how you found the remains of this animal in a museum in Chicago, please. Yeah, to me this is, uh, you know, we can pick through a lot of possible stories, but this is the one that I love to tell. The, the year was at 2003. I had been living in Australia for a couple of years. I had met my wife-to-be, a lovely young lady named Laura. I thought you were going to say a lovely mammal. <laughs> she is a mammal? Yes. So, uh, so Lauren, <laughs> Lauren came with me back to the U.S. for Christmas to meet the family. So we decided we'd take a, a drive a few hours uh, south to Chicago. I wanted to get some things done in the Field Museum in Chicago. So Lauren and I were working there even in the middle of the night, howling winds outside in Chicago. So... On one of these these nights, I was working through systematically the raccoon family, and uh, I opened up a big white metal cabinet and pulled out a drawer that was sort of a really big, long cabinet, big, long drawer, about as long as I am tall. And there were sitting on this metal cabinet these red pelts, almost like red panda red, if you can think about that. Just gorgeous, long-furred, beautiful things. And I looked at them, and 
I had no idea what they were. And I said, yeah, I've never seen anything like this. You know, and again, my, my shtick had been to become fluent in, you know, recognizing mammals on sight, no matter what they are. I had not seen anything like this. They certainly didn't like, like any raccoon relative I'd ever seen. I pulled out the next drawer below it. There were more like this, but some of them were very similar, but, but you know, brown or tan. Some of them were red. Um, some of them had yellowish highlights. I took the uh, skulls sitting next to them, and I started looking. I looked at the, the shape of the molars, and I looked at the shape of the ear bones, and I just sort of set it down, and I thought, I thought this is related to a raccoon, but it is like nothing else. And I knew kind of in that moment this was very likely to be a new species, a species un undescribed by scientists. But I could also tell that whatever this was, and if I was right about that, this was going to be one that would potentially capture people's attention because it was of a decent size. It's about the size of a house cat. It was beautiful. He talked mm. about adorable mammals, Richard. This thing had the sort of look in the face of something like a teddy bear. And so Lauren and I worked through the night, you know, taking pictures, taking notes, copying the labels of, of you know, off the skin tags. And what did the labels tell you about where it was found and when it was found? Exactly. That's, and Richard, that's the first thing you want to look at in a museum specimen. Where and when. Where right. and when. And these had come from the Andes of Colombia. And they'd been in the museum for a long time, 1930s or so. And how is it that it goes overlooked for so long? Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Chris, before you were telling us how you were in a museum in Chicago where you stumbled on the remains of a raccoon-like creature with beautiful long red fur. This was an animal that had been found in the Andes Mountains in South America some 80 years ago. Once you knew that, what did you want to do about it then? Well, I had a couple options. Now, one is that just on the basis of, of a detailed study of its anatomy, it was quite easy to defend that this was something that had never been seen before. It wouldn't be a matter of splitting hairs. I mean, the shape, for example, of of the cusps on the teeth was so different than any other mammal that, you know, I could have announced to the world that we'd made this really interesting discovery in a museum in Chicago of an overlooked animal. But there's so many more questions. Yeah. Like, and that's, like are they still around? Exactly. So did you want to go and see it in the wild then? Exactly. And that, from that point on, really defined how I approached these problems as a mammologist, which is that if I find it in something like a museum drawer, I'm not going to be satisfied just to proceed and describe and announce it to the world 
just based on that information. Well, that's great, but you've somehow got to find where... In, the Andes is a big place. <laughs> Colombia is a big country. So then you have to... What do you do then? Do you have to find the records of the expedition and find out... Can you find out exactly Precisely. where it went? Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of this work is like being a historical detective. You're so, working so, in so, archives. And you've got to follow in the footsteps of whoever it was went up that mountain 70, 80 years previously. Bingo. And this is what, this is what I've done repeatedly on expeditions to all corners of the globe now for for 20 years. We first looked at going to Colombia, where it had been found before, and we were looking at satellite imagery, we were looking at all kinds of tools, and we realized that the forest that had been, this animal had been found in long ago no longer existed. Oh, dear. Been taken, taken oh, away, no. you know. And so, um, so we then looked at just across the border in Ecuador, trying to find similar types of habitats, similar stretches of mountains that cross the border, similar uh, vegetation, things like this, and used that to take this dozen people planning on an expedition. So we went down to the, uh, a site in Ecuador, and we got up into the mountains. We traveled uh, by car. We traveled by bus. We traveled by uh, on the backs of mules. We walked we traveled in the backs of trucks to get to this... This candidate forest. <laughs> this, candidate this, is, this isn't forest. the forest, is this it? This isn't the forest. Because it doesn't is, exist anymore. This is like... A candidate forest. And this is like, you know, you, you're hopeful, but it's also, yeah. you know, it's a bit needle in a haystack kind of territory. Like, you know, is, is, is this animal that was decades ago across the border somewhere in Colombia there? How long did you have to wait or how far did you have to search to find a living example of one of these strange, beautiful, red raccoon-like creatures. Well, the very first night we were there, we found the <laughs> animal. <laughs> the very first night? Yeah. yeah. How did you see it? We saw it up, up in the trees. We were able to able even to film it. At night? Uh, at night, jumping to jumping So were you spotlighting trees? or something? Spotlighting. Or, right. Absolutely, spotlighting. And, and, and so you, what, you put a spotlight up in the trees and there I was looking back at you? Look, we were pacing through the forest where we thought we'd expect to find animals like this, spotlighting for anything we could find. You know, there's animals, uh, other kinds of animals up in the trees like porcupines and tree rats and things. But, yeah, very first night we found this creature. Now, one of the reasons why this species had been overlooked for so long is that and we, by the way we ended, we came to call this animal the olinguito that's olinguito. the name that's the name we apply it's a common name of it it's sort of uh, uh, a spanish riff on uh, another animal in the raccoon family called the olingo people in the past who had ever seen an olinguito or or brought one to a museum they had confused it with either another animal called the olingo or the kinkajou so once you had caught a live Olinguito, and you could look at it, the living thing up close. What was that like? What did you see? But, you said uh, looking at its skull, you imagined it looked like a teddy bear. Did it look like a teddy bear? It looks exactly like really? a teddy bear. And you can go, you can go online, just Google Olinguito, and you'll see that you know this is a darling animal. It's adorable, and it does have some of the aspect of, of, a, of a teddy bear. They, when we first announced it uh, in the press, I made some offhanded line about it being a cross between a house cat and a teddy bear. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of stories ran with that. But it really is true. Take a look and, and people will see that. And but given that it was so, so f that it, it had its identity had remained obscure for so long, is it endangered? You would think that, you know, in most cases, a story like this would result in us showing that, yeah, it's found in a limited number of places and 
And, uh, there are five left. One's five in Las left. Vegas. Well, exactly. That's it. <laughs> right. You know, that's yeah. right. But the amazing part of this story, too, is that didn't turn out to be the case. We did something fun as we did a kind of a splashy press conference around the discovery and the naming of the animal. And again, when we released images of it and told this, this story that, that grabbed people's interest in a kind of uh, mistaken identity or long, you know, long, long overlooked creature, a lot of people got really into the Olinguito. And nowhere more so than, you know, and this is cool, down in Ecuador and Colombia. And so as soon as it was kind of made clear what this animal is, how distinctive it is, and how to tell it apart from anything else, people went looking for it. And they went looking for it in two ways. One is that they got out into nature and they went to national parks and reserves or, or you know, various kinds of protected areas, any kinds of landscapes they might find it, and they started to find it. Other times it was school kids, young primary school kids or high school classes that got interested in, you know, setting out to learn something about this animal. And then other times it was even people went and reviewed their holiday snaps or their birding pictures or things that maybe five or ten years prior. Right. Well, what the yeah. hell's that? And then it turns right. out it yeah. was an Olinguito. Olinguito all this time. Within a year of our announcement of the discovery of that beautiful animal, we ended up, I think, doing another press conference totally fun just and what we did is we were able to announce based on people just reaching out to us during that first Olinguito year how much we had <laughs> learned about the animal and one of the things we learned Richard is that it was in a lot of protected areas in Colombia and Ecuador that we hadn't realized and that even though it's a species that lives up at up at elevation and what we call cloud forests a particular kind of high elevation forest up in the Andes uh, it probably isn't an endangered species. Chris, another animal, another mammal you've helped discover and name is a creature known as the Skywalker gibbon. What on earth is a Skywalker gibbon? And is it related in any way to Star Wars? Is that where it gets its name from? I'm not, I'm not even joking here. Yeah, seriously. No, no, it's, it, it, we, there's no, no joke. It is actually, there is, there is a link there. Let's talk about it. A gibbon is a kind of ape. It's an incredible, um, beautiful animal, it's sort of medium-sized primate that has these long limbs, right? It's a, what we call a brachiator. It's a, you know, moves through the trees by Swings, swinging. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's about a dozen species of gibbons. They're all found in Southeast Asia. So what a thrill it was for me as a scientist to be able to be involved in, you know, the discovery and description as new to science naming of a species of ape. Uh, this one's very endangered. It's found only on the border of, of Burma, of Myanmar, and China. Um, there's a few hundred of them in the world. And uh, it was another case of being an animal that was clearly a distinct species once, once, once we looked closely at it, but no one had really just taken that level of examination to look at it before we, we, we did. And this is work that I did largely with um, Chinese colleagues, and one of them was a rising, budding, young expert who came to uh, the Smithsonian, where I used to be based, to work and train with me. And one of the things we worked on together was naming this species. So so who was the Star Wars fan? And did it bear a resemblance to Mark Hamill? Or, or is that hence the name? Or was, it, was the Skywalker referring to its, its swinging from tree to tree? Yeah, it's, it's swinging from tree to tree. That My colleague is uh, Dr. Kai He. He loved Star Wars. And um, we had lots of discussions about what this should be named. And so um, the species name in Chinese 
ultimately kind of has a, a double meaning. And, and Gibbon's feature in, in Chinese sort of ancient scholarship and manuscripts and the like, and they have this kind of aspect as these heavenly creatures. They glide through the air, they sort of exist on a higher plane. And so we gave them that allusion in classical Chinese, but Kai at the same time wanted to also translate in English to Skywalker. But what was really kind of cool about this is the moment we announced this one is Luke Skywalker. Mark know, Hamill. Mark Hamill. The day we announced it, he was all over it. He was thrilled. He remains thrilled by it. And he <laughs> announced it everywhere on social media. And, you know, within hours of us circulating this story of a new species of ape, you know, maybe a billion people had seen it because Luke Skywalker himself had uh, gotten in on the story. Chris, your work's taking you into a mountainous region of West Papua, just mm. to the north of Australia, to a place called the Foja Mountains in West Papua. What were you looking for up there? The Foja's was a really special mission, and I've been there a, a few times. We started in the early 2000s with a team of other Australian and Indonesian scientists trying to chart a course to get into the Foja's because they are arguably the scientifically least known isolated large mountain range in West Papua. But people don't live there? It's uninhabited? So that's an extraordinary aspect about it is that, yes, at higher elevations, the Foja's seem to be uninhabited. So people live kind of in the riverine lowlands in the Mambaramo Basin, this big, huge part of northwestern New Guinea, out of which the Foja Mountains rise, you know, out of this flat, hot, lowland uh, area up into the sky. So they're uninhabited because they're inaccessible. <laughs> How did you make your way into the Foja Mountains then? What, chopper or something? Yeah, could you climb up there? chopper. And once you went into this Jules Verne-like land that time forgot, what was it like? Is it strange? Oh, Richard, it is just extraordinary to, th to set foot in there. We landed in this bog up at, a, at about 1,500 meters, and it was one of the only places in, you know, 100 kilometers of unbroken, pristine mountain forest that we could, you know, even find anywhere that we could possibly set down. Got out of the helicopter, and I was with some of my colleagues, uh, experts in, in frogs, experts in birds, you know, experts in insects. All of us were there to learn about a different facet about life in these mountains because we'd not been able to get in to this extraordinary isolated mountain range. And people have been in New Guinea for at least 50 millennia, you know, possibly longer. And so there are very few places in the Australia-New Guinea region where we can you know, point to and look at and think that you know, they... Uh, are pretty unmodified by any kind of human habitation. It's very remote. Uh, again, there's no people around. And this place of the Foges was like a handful of places now I've been able to see in, in working in New Guinea, just a very small number of places that without animals being hunted, they're places where you can go and see things like wallabies, tree kangaroos, little possums, and approach them, have them not be very afraid of you, and come up close and interact with them. There's no innate fear of humans. Right. It's something, it's, it's something like, you know, the Galapagos, a place that was sort of lost to humanity until very late in history. So what happens then in these kinds of 
isolated things is you get, you know, mountain islands where, you know, the lowland fauna isn't adapted for the highlands and the things that become adapted evolve in situ, essentially, inside these mountains and become unique species. And so these are places to go to find things that have been evolving for hundreds of thousands or millions of years that scientists haven't yet found. When you are in the inhabited parts of that island, though, the uh, intertribal politics are really complicated. Tell me how you uh, became embroiled in an intertribal yeah. conflict while you were there. Exactly right. Very complicated. And I've been embroiled in many over, over the years, particularly so in Papua New Guinea, really, on the PNG side. And, you know, Australians are, are familiar with PNG. Americans generally not. But when other, no matter who I'm talking to, you know, whether an Australian or an American audience, I, I explain right away that, you know, if you want to find the place on the globe that is as different as possible <laughs> along all axes, along all dimensions, than the Western world, you go to New Guinea. And, you know, so yes, New Guinea is a place that is uh, extraordinarily uh, biologically diverse, it's linguistically diverse, it's ethnically diverse, and it's these different situations between different groups on the ground that can be really complicated. I remember one expedition it was in Enga province in PNG, and Enga is kind of notorious for tough customers. It's a place where, um, sadly, a lot of violence between different groups of people still does go on. So it can be a pretty dicey place to work. We Like with guns or machetes? Um, more to do with machetes, but yeah. it can be uh, other things too. But mostly kind of what we think of as, as you know, more basic. And can you see those winds of battle in your in your guides? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one, one, one time I was working with a particularly tough, hard-bitten crew of people helping me with mammal catching. One guy was missing an arm, for example, um, that had been hacked off in a dispute. And so on that particular expedition, what we had done is we had brought some government supporters slash observers with us, you know, who wanted to be participate in the expedition. They joined us out in the field. It turned out, and of course, we all should have known this much better, but the, the group of people that uh, we were working with um, the local landowners really disliked the group that these government uh, officials had come from. And so there was some, some friction there and between these two groups of New Guineans. And, uh, so you had a whole Ukraine-Russia thing going on <laughs> right, right between your, these people, right? Absolutely. Okay. And, and it probably didn't help that the government officials were sort of a little more heavy-handed and, and whatnot, and the, the local landowners didn't exactly appreciate kind of their, well, how yeah. they were being treated like anyway. They thought they were arrogant or something. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. So, so, so what happened then? What happened is one morning, and I get up early on these expeditions because I go and check my mouse and rat traps, you know, that have hopefully been filled up overnight by interesting creatures. I had done one of my kind of trap line walks through the forest and came out from this beautiful forest into a grassland opening, you know, near, near where we were camping. I was there with a number of Western scientists and New Guinean colleagues and about a dozen of these guys who were basically my mammal whisperers. They were my hunters and trappers that, you know, really enjoyed working with me because I, you know, we enjoyed doing this work together. We had established a great rapport working for, for a while together. And they said, you know, Chris, we love working together with you. We're doing fun stuff, collecting mammals together. But um, we, you know, want you to know that some of these other guys you brought along on this expedition, no good. And uh, we're going to have to chop them. 
This is all in in, in Tokpisin. Uh, this is in you know in the New Guinea language. And what you mean, kill them? Well, that's what I, I said. Whoa, 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 what do you mean? You know, chop. You know, what do you mean to chop? And he said, "Well, we're going to chop them." So, well, hold on, hold on. We can't have anything like that. You know, what do you mean? You know, what what do you actually mean to chop? And the, and the sort of ringleader of this group, he hangs his head and he looks at me like, "How could I possibly be more of an idiot?" And he says, "We're going to kill them." <laughs> I spent the next twenty minutes talking to them about how that absolutely was not going to happen. We couldn't uh, have any uh, violence that we were all well, there that, working Chris. there together. You can say that. Yeah. You know, how are you going to stop that from happening? Well, exactly. It was, I mean, it was quick. I didn't have to start long into that conversation to realize that, yeah, I wasn't going to easily, you know, placate those sorts of, of tendencies. There had even been, there was even, they were telling me that they had even gone to the tents of these men the night before and thought about doing it then, but it wanted to come and, and chat with me first. So how did you talk? You, did you talk them down out of it, out of this? I was 25 years old. I was navigating it in, in, in Tokpisin and I was drawing on our combined love of mammals. And I, you know, I said, you guys know me, you know, I know a lot about mammals. That means I've worked a lot of different places in New Guinea you know, here I am a, a white Westerner, but any mammal we see, I can, you know, talk with them and we, you know, they know how much I love them, how much I know about them and they uh, are there for it. You know, they, they are fascinated by hunting and eating and, and learning as much as they can about animals. So I drew, drew on that report. I said, I love how much we've been working together, but you know, I've come a long way. I'm American. I've come from Australia and I've come to work with you because I knew that you guys would be able to find me this particular kind of animal. And I, I told them about a striped possum. It's an animal with a long finger, a musky, skunk-like smell. It's a particularly rare kind of it. And they, they had told me when I first started talking to them that they could find it for me. I said, look, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm only here for a number more days. You got, I've come to find this animal with you. Where Where is this creature? And I started, started getting defensive. Oh, we're going to find it. I said, no, no, no. We, we need to concentrate on other things. You know, I understand you have some of these concerns. We're going to talk about them. But we're now, today, we're going to focus on finding this creature. Oh, my God. When I'm in bed for a bit like this, ultimately, 10 minutes later, um, they're charging over, literally, over the next hillside to try to prove to me that they can find this species that I want more than, you know, than anything to come to see and to learn about. As soon as they were far away as, as I thought was safe, I uh, went back to the camp. Some of my colleagues, you know, who have long histories of dealing with these kinds of, of disputes in New Guinea, you know, saw the shape of it right away as I started to explain it and got on the radio. And so we got emergency helicopters out from a mining site uh, to come and, and uh, to pick these guys, uh, these guys up to get them off to safety. The, uh, the, the offensive officials. Exactly. What, what, uh. What's interesting, you know, uh, you know, working with my, you know, colleagues in New Guinea is always amazing. It's an education. It's an experience. It's, they are incredible people. Anything that takes me that I see or hear or realize in the landscape out there, you know, they're 10 steps ahead of me. When the chopper started coming, they heard it. Their ears heard it long before, you know, I even realized it was coming. And so they started sprinting back. The chopper landed. We got these guys in it, got them sent out. And this group of, of men who had been, been working with came back to me and they were irate. And they said, you know, we told you 
that we had a, you know, we had a beef with those guys. And what do you do? You send them away so we can't deal with them? And I said, you told me how much they had offended you. I came straight back here and I said, that's it. You guys are out of here. Out. <laughs> you guys are out of here. And I sent them on their way. And then they, they thought that was great. They thought that was great. <sighs> 25 years old you were at the time. Man. I mentioned at the start there that you've arrived at a theory that mammals, the first mammals, arose in Australia. What, what was Australia or what the landmass of Australia was part of way back when? How far back are we talking here, Chris? Yeah, so we're talking about very early in mammal history. If you go back in time to the time of, of the dinosaurs, uh, as, as, as people will probably well know, the southern continents were united into a, a single landmass called Gondwana, Really, really fascinating collection of landscapes and 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 real estate. You know, so it's it, like Australia, New Guinea, New Zealand, Antarctica, Antarctica, Africa, right, South America, and then even Madagascar and India. All right, yeah. So all of this was was Gondwana and uh, uh, real estate, and over time, and particularly over the last sort of, you know, a uh, hundred million years, most of those land land masses have you know spun off. To different parts of the world and moving and drifting apart from Antarctica north. Now, in some ways, it probably shouldn't surprise us that early mammal evolution was unfolding, you know, in poignant ways, profound ways here in Australia, because as we said earlier, it's the place where all three ways to be a mammal, monotremes, oh, marsupials, and placentals can still be found. That's one clue, the fact that egg-laying mammals are still found in this part of the world, that that first offshoot on the mammal family tree that is, you know, leading off to the platypus and the echidna was happening in this part of the world. So, so do, these, does, do mammals then all come from one common mammalian ancestor? Is there an er mammal that all the mammals in the world, including us and elephants and bats and whales and mice and cats and dogs all come from? Absolutely. So, yeah, we all share a common ancestor. We, can, we know by a combination of, of looking at the fossil record and studying DNA that that was probably about a quarter of a billion years ago that the, the common ancestor of all living mammals was was found. And what was this creature? Do we know? Is there anything in the fossil record to tell us what it is? Yeah, there's some clues. And so it was small. It was, you know, a bit shrew-like. It was fairly toothy. It had a lot of sharp front teeth and various premolars and molars for kind of grinding up insects and the like. And we know we know that these are, are mammals in part because of the shape of their ear bones and other things. We can't, of course, go back in the fossil record and see, for the most part, hair or mammary glands. So we use clues from the teeth and things uh, like the ears. So we're all descended from this toothy, mousy creature, in other words. That That's we're all right. from, we're Humans and all these other creatures are descended. All uh, of us. All, all of us from this, this one creature. All the different ways to be a mammal. And, and in particular, some of those uh, fossils from Australia are some of the most important that are starting to guide our thinking on what it looked like to be, you know, kind of early non-egg-laying mammal that ultimately gave rise to most of the mammals that we know on the planet today. I wonder if you think whether all other nations really do need to pay tribute to Australia as the, as the host nation of the great mammalian class of animals. Mammalogically, absolutely. It's been great and fascinating speaking with you, Chris. Thank you so much. Uh, and what a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. ABC.net. .au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.